Well, let's uh, let's turn in our Bibles back to Lamentations. It's been a couple weeks here, so we want to jump back in. And uh, as you're turning to Lamentations, let me just remind you of where we've been. My name is Keith. I will be your tour guide today as we launch ourselves into a verse-by-verse study of the book of Lamentations. It's that dusty book buried in the prophetic section of your Bible. You say, why is such a little teeny tiny book tucked between you know, the massive redwoods of uh, Jeremiah and Ezekiel? And, and the answer is because it is, in a sense, an, an addendum, a, a, a supplement to Jeremiah's main contribution, the book of Jeremiah. And so uh, it is put there with him because he was the author of both of those. Uh, what do you know about Lamentations? Uh, talk to me here. What, what do you remember? It's a funeral song for Jerusalem. A song for Jerusalem. Uh, that's really what lament means. Um, lament's very popular today, and, it, and especially in the church, everybody's writing books on lament and blogs on lament, and that's in part why I wanted to do this, but a lament is really the expression of sorrow in some way, the expression of grief, and in a technical sense, lament is actually a funeral song or a grief song. So I- unless you're singing... It's not technically lament, at least as the Bible thinks about it. And, and we'll talk about, not that it's bad if you're not singing, but just that's what this book really envisions is an actual funeral poem or song for the nation of Jerusalem. Why are we, why are we having a funeral for Jerusalem? What's that? Yeah, it just fell. It was just conquered by an enemy people. Um, and over a couple of... Uh, Decades, there was a campaign to bring about the destruction of Jerusalem. You can read about it in the book of Second Kings and uh, also in prophetic books like Isaiah. But um, what, what you see in that time is uh, Jerusalem falls, the walls are broken into, the temple is destroyed, um, and uh, God's people are either killed or scattered or taken back to Babylon. And um, what else do you know about Jeremiah? Why would God do that? Yeah, to be true to his promises. And and what was the promise that led to the destruction of the city? I know Carl knows the answer. Someone else. Don't be shy. Yes. When you and I read Lamentations and we read about the horrors of war, about the realities of starvation, of even cannibalism, of atrocities of seeing even small children slayed in the streets or taken off to be slaves and your heart grieves and breaks, what we're supposed to remember is that that is something of what God thinks about our own sin. The the horror in Lamentations is is a, a temporal picture of how much God hates sin and how 
serious he is that we would worship him alone. Um, when we think about eternal judgment and we go, oh, you know, hell sounds like a lot of fun, right? Partying with my friends. Read the prophets. The prophets are there to sober us when we're not serious about the things we ought to be serious about. And um, so as horrible as this is, it's a reminder, a sobering reminder about the reality of sin to us. So Jeremiah has spent 40 years, over 40 years, pleading with the people to repent and to turn away from their sin. God has promised forgiveness. He's promised restoration. He's promised grace and mercy if they'll turn to him. And so year after year, decade after decade, um, I mean, that, that's hard to imagine. You know, uh, it would be like it would be like when I was in grade school, Jeremiah started his ministry, and um, Jerusalem was destroyed this year. I mean, I just think about my lifetime. That that my lifetime is how long he preached, and I go, man, that's. And then this was the conclusion of his ministry. Um, what must have felt like utter um, loss, utter failure in that. Yeah, Nick? Yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's right. It does. Yeah, it really does. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, no, it's true. And we know that, um, and, and not just Jeremiah, Isaiah was told something similar. Many of the prophets were told similar things. Um, hey, I'm going to send you to a people. You're going to minister for 40 years, and they're not going to listen. And by the way, the end of your ministry is going to be uh, Jerusalem's destroyed. Are you in? And it does take a special person in God's grace to do that. So, Well, let's come to chapter 3 today with that little bit of a review. And um, we turn chapter 3, and if you've been paying attention, Jeremiah is a very um, artistically brilliant piece of literature. Each chapter is an alphabetic acrostic, and uh, so far we have seen the first two chapters have started with a word of shock, a word of horror. It's the word how. How did this happen? How could this be? And we see it again in chapter 4. But one of the things that changes the key of the psalm, it's a, it's a artistic change, it's a rhythmic, poetic change, is we're reading chapter 1, we're reading chapter 2, and it's horrible things, horrible things, destruction, God's judging, we've rebelled, and we turn the page... And instead of hearing again, how can this be, we we read the word, I. And it's as if Jeremiah steps down from his platform of prophetic uh, ministry and he says, I want to talk to you about how hard this has been for me personally. 
And one of the things that we forget is that these prophets, as Nick was just saying, uh, you know, the, the job description, we forget that these prophets were just like you and me. These are not spiritual superheroes. This is not the, the Marvel comic section in your Bible. These are ordinary men and women just like you and me that had a faith in God. And yet, uh, I, I was just reading Hosea and you go, really? God tells Hosea to do that as, as a, a meta, you know, his life is in a sense a metaphor of God's message to the people. And uh, so Mr. Jeremiah allows us to see the struggles of his own heart in this passage. And I don't think we're supposed to read this and go, man, Jeremiah was a phony. Look at him. You know, I think we're supposed to read this and say, you know what, Jeremiah was just like you and me. And God used him in extraordinary ways, but he certainly wasn't perfect. And uh, if you've ever struggled with things like this, I, I want you to know you're in good company. Uh, because even the prophets struggled with some of these feelings that you and I struggle with. So let's look together at chapter 3. We see the, the personal struggle of the prophet. It starts off, literally, I am the man. I am the man. Remember we had how in one one two one and four one, and so that that break in the the normality of the pattern is designed to say there's something new, there's something different going on here. Whereas Jeremiah's lament is largely about the nation, his people, and the destruction of Jerusalem, he also personally lived through this horrible time, and and, uh, and we can try to imagine the weight of what he carried every day and the feelings of being a failure, of not succeeding, of wondering, of questioning. I mean, we don't know what that was all like, but here he gives us some insight into how he felt. Look with me at chapter 3, verse 1. I am the man who has seen affliction. Remember in the previous chapters, often he will use we or I, and, and usually what he's doing is he's speaking as a representative for the nation. But the language changes here. Jeremiah is not speaking for the nation here. He's saying, I want to tell you about my struggle in all this. What's been hard for me and something of what God is doing in me. I am the man, verse 1, who has seen affliction because of the rod of his wrath. He has driven me and made me walk in darkness and not in light. Surely against me he has turned his hand repeatedly all the day. He has caused my flesh and my skin to waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and encompassed me with bitterness and hardship. In dark places he has made me dwell like those who have long been dead. He has walled me in so that I cannot go out. He's made my chain heavy. And even when I cry out and call for help, he shuts out my prayer. He's blocked my ways with a hewn stone. He's made my paths crooked. He, God, is to me like a bear lying in wait, like a lion in secret places. He has turned aside my ways and torn me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He has bent his bow and set me as the target for the arrow. He made the arrows of his quiver to enter into my inward parts. And I have become a laughing stock to all my people. Their mocking song 
all the day. He has filled me with bitterness. He has made me drunk with wormwood. He has broken my teeth with gravel. He has made me cower in the dust. My soul has been rejected from peace. And I have forgotten happiness. So I say, my strength has perished, and so has my hope from the Lord. That represents something of the lowest place a soul can be in the human experience. And this is not some pagan that is an idolater, you know, some guy that doesn't know Jesus. This is the prophet of God after four decades of faithful ministry saying, I don't remember what it's like to be happy. It's been so long. And I don't have any hope in God anymore. It hurts too much. What do you notice? What do you notice if we can call this spiritual depression? What are some of the features? What's depression sound like? What does it feel like? According to Mr. Jeremiah here. Hopelessness. Feels heavy. Abandonment. What's that? It's relentless. It doesn't let up, right? What's that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Seeing God as the agent, right? As the the one who's doing this. Yes, Ruth? Uh huh. Yeah. Viewing God as an enemy, seeing God as an enemy. Okay. An inward focus. What else? If you've ever struggled with depression, this is like, this has been in my Bible for all these years. We have people in in our counseling offices, without knowing this is here, that use very similar language. Feeling dark, feeling walled in or trapped, forgetting what it's like to be happy. Um, loss of hope, despair, pain. He talks about, um, where is it? He talks about uh, brokenness of bones, my flesh and my skin waste away. And, and I mean, you can take that in a literal sense. Jeremiah was, was thrown into a pit and left to die at one point, and it's possible, very likely, he broke bones in the fall. Uh, or it could be uh, what you and I say when we are dealing with spiritual pain, or sometimes we call that emotional pain, where um, every bone in your body is intact, but you hurt like there's something physically wrong with you, right? Uh, David said when he kept silent about his sin, his body wasted away. So, so we recognize that spiritual pain and hurt can make our bodies hurt in very, very significant ways. 
What else do you see here? What's depression like? Yeah. People laughing at him, mocking him. You know, we we couple that verse with some things that are said in Jeremiah. And the the picture, you know, for, for 40 years, you know, Monday, Jeremiah wanders into the city. The people are gathered there, engaging in um, vocation, engaging in commerce. They're eating, they're drinking, they're playing with their kids. And as Jeremiah is walking in, the bustle of the city stops, and they all turn and look at Jeremiah, and they make fun of him. And they mock him. They belittle him. Jeremiah goes home. Tuesday, they walk in. He walks in. They do the same thing. Wednesday, he walks in. They do the same thing. They mock him. They make fun of him. Thursday, he walks in. They mock him. They make fun of him. Friday, he come, day after day, week after week, year upon year, decade after decade, 40 years. That was his routine. And after a while, apparently the people got bored with that, so they made up songs about him. So now he's walking in and they're singing these songs, mocking Jeremiah, the prophet of God, as he comes to care for their spiritual soul. And like Nick said, um, how do you do that for four decades? God is like a bear or a lion waiting to devour me. He's like an archer shooting arrows at my soul. Um, he's made my path... Cr- you ever feel like that? Um, my life was going great and then something happened and now my life, my path is crooked. And Jeremiah says, you know, I keep looking for the straight path and God pe- keeps putting speed bumps. <coughs> diversions. You know, I, I just I just want things to go well for a little bit. I just want to be able to rest. And there's always a trial, always a difficulty, always a problem. Jeremiah says, God's doing that to me. I just want to breathe. And you know, that's one of the first insights that we're supposed to see here is when we think about spiritual depression, so much of depression has to do with how we are interpreting our experiences. Uh, you know, we, we see this in the military world when um, the men and women of our military come home and maybe there was a, a platoon or there was a, a team that went through a particularly tragic combat situation. And uh, let's say let's say two guys come back. One develops PTSD symptoms. One does not. Why is that? It's interesting. Um, think of siblings that go through a very very difficult childhood. One moves into life. Dealing well with those things. One develops all sorts of trouble and difficulty and and they struggle for the rest of their life. Why is that? Um, Why is it two people can go through the same scenarios and have very different responses? Well, in part because we're different people. 
God makes us different. And in part, and this is what we're supposed to see here, so much of life depends on how we interpret and respond to life. And um, if you've struggled with depression or you know somebody who is, this is really insightful. Uh, I think it was Paul Tripp that said, we don't live out of what happens in life. We live out of how we interpret the circumstances of life. Our life is based on how we're interpreting things and responding to things rather than just, oh, things went well or things didn't go well. There's another step. It's how we're interpreting and responding. So so look with me, look back at the text and tell me, how is Jeremiah interpreting the calamities that have happened uh, leading up to the Babylonian captivity? What, what do you see there? You, you've said some of the things already, but t- focus on how is he interpreting things? Yeah, there, there's definitely an inward focus. Yeah. Yeah, and and we can put together some of this that when I'm focused on myself too much or if I'm focused on myself in an inappropriate way, that leads to wrong responses and in this case maybe some self-pity which can morph and and gravitate into full-blown bitterness, can it? Okay, so a self-focus. What else do you see in terms of how he's interpreting Maybe a victim? Like sure. Yeah. 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 So, so I'm always a victim. yeah. Always a victim? Okay. Yeah, definitely some of those things. What else? God's shutting him out. Yeah, yeah. I want you to see, focus on how is he interpreting God here? I mean, look look with me, guys. Um, my affliction has come, 3-1, because of the rod of his wrath. That's true. Right? God is doing the discipline. God is bringing the Babylonians in to discipline people. That's true. But, but notice how Jeremiah personalizes it. And then he runs with the ball 27 yards in the wrong direction. He's turned against me, verse 3, his hand, repeatedly all the day. Verse 6, in dark places he has made me dwell. Verse 7, he's walled me in so I can't go out. He's made my chain heavy. Verse 8, even when I cry out for help, he shuts out my prayer. He's blocked me in. He's made my path crooked. And then, as you guys have indicated, he uses these three analogies. God's like a bear. God's like a lion. God's like an archer. And the idea is, God's out to destroy me. You ever felt like that? I know what I learned in Sunday school. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. I know that. But if I'm honest, it feels like God is out for my destruction in light of what I just went through and I'm still going through. You ever felt like that? Where your your Sunday school lesson collides with the pain of the reality of something you're going through. Yeah, Carl. One of the things that's coming out to me in this is that all these things, we're talking about all these things are going to happen to everybody. And we, we tend to think that way on a lot of stuff. But we're going to be protected from yeah. it. And then suddenly dawning on him as he's going through all this, 
Yeah, that's true. That's good. I know you're in the back. Carl's saying sometimes we can think that because we're believers, we're going to be protected from all this stuff that happens when the reality he's realizing he's not going to be protected. He's going to go through some of the same things. And I don't know where that notion is that, you know, you have that come to Jesus moment and, and then, you know, life is, you know, daisies and gold streets and prosperity and health. And, you know, that's not in our Bible. And in fact, it might shock us initially to learn what is in our Bible, where Jesus himself says things like this, if they persecuted me, they're going to do what? Persecute you. That, that making the right decision to follow Christ actually might make your life harder. And yet, to believe that those hard and painful things are God's graces, that they're disguised mercies for our good and flourishing, we just we just don't usually see that right away. Um, so, so I want you to remember this, that whether it's depression or something else, how you and I interpret God and what He's doing are crucial to every response of life. I want you to think about that. When you and I go through things, how am I interpreting the character of God? How am I interpreting how He's relating to me? And then how am I interpreting what's actually going on in life? And it's so easy, guys, to let the pain of a difficult experience wrongly influence how we view God and how we view what He's doing. One, one, of, the, one of the turning points, when I've had the privilege of working with people with depression, our counseling team here, and maybe you've seen this personally or with somebody else, one of the turning points, like like things are going to be okay in depression if this happens, when when this occurs, when we stop letting how we feel be the lens that we interpret God and life through, and we let the scriptures let we let the scriptures be the lens that we're interpreting life and God through. Uh, you will end up with a monster if you let your pain and fallen emotions determine the character and nature of God in that experience. And that's what Jeremiah has here. This isn't the God of Scripture. This is a monster. This is someone out for his destruction, out for his undoing. So remember, when you and I go through hard things and emotions are high and pain is real, we are very, very vulnerable to misinterpret the character and nature of God. Do not believe the lies of your fallen emotions when they whisper blasphemies to you about your God and what He's doing. Don't believe those things. Um, that's when we run back to the Scripture and we say, Lord, help me to renew my mind. Help me to think on what's true. Help me to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Right? That, that's what those verses are about. Because if we take our hands off the steering wheel of our thoughts and we let our emotions and our feelings and the pain of our experience dictate who God is and what He's doing, uh, we end up with horrible, blasphemous pictures of who God is. And then you, you know what happens then? Then you run away from God instead of running to Him when you need Him the most. 
So we can learn from Mr. Jeremiah here about how important it is how we're interpreting circumstances. Uh, By the way, um, the prophets and spiritual depression is actually a very common thing. We see Jeremiah wrestled with this. Do you remember Elijah in 1 Kings? You don't need to turn there. What happens in chapter 18? 1 Kings chapter 18. What's that? The prophets of Baal. That's right. Yeah, you think the, the Red River rivalry is the thing? This is the showdown on Mount Carmel with the, the prophets of the Baals, right? The, these pagan uh, gods and the people of God have been sucked into that. They have fallen for that. They have turned away from Yahweh to these false gods. And Elijah says, okay, let's do an experiment right here. here here's the game. Here's, here's the showdown. And he builds the altar, remember this? He builds the altar up on Mount Carmel there and, and says, okay, we're going to bring in the best of the pagan prophets and uh, we're, we're going to see which God shows up. And so the, the, prophet, the pagan prophets show up and they're praying and doing their rituals and they're doing what they do and there's, there's, the, there's the sacrifice, dry, on the altar, and uh, then they get desperate. The prophets, the Bible says, start slashing themselves as a means of motivating their gods to, to consume the sacrifice. And I know this isn't the case, but I, I, picture, I picture Elijah sitting in like this, you know, the, the chairs you get from the, the um, like Cabela's or somewhere like that. He's sitting over there with his lemonade going... Um, why did she yell louder? Maybe he can't hear you. And then he says, maybe he's in the bathroom. It's actually what he says. Go back and read First uh, Kings 18. And, um, and they do this from sunup to sundown, the Bible says. And then it's Yahweh's turn. And uh, Elijah says, um, before we do this, go get some water. Dump it on the, the sacrifice. Do it again. Do it again, right? So, so the, the sacrifice is saturated with water and Elijah prays and fire comes down from heaven and it consumes not just the water-soaked sacrifices. The scripture actually says it consumed the rocks around the altar. And the prophets of Baal said, um, uh-oh, we better get out of here. And there was a great slaughter that day. And you'd think that Jeremiah or Elijah would be getting book deals, movie contracts after that, you know, I mean, just, right? And then what happens in chapter 19? He gets a report. Jezebel heard what happened. She's not happy. So what does he do? He runs away. He flees. God finds him in a cave. What are you doing here, Elijah? And he's cowering in depression. You say, you ever been like that? You know, you, you have every reason to be encouraged about some spiritual victory and then something happens and you're in bed and can't get out. Well, guess what? That's, that's normal. That's normal life. Elijah was like that. Jonah was like that. Jonah, just, we need to talk about Jonah sometime. I just, we, we can't do that right now, but, 
Jonah is a, a case study in lots of emotions. But remember, you know, he, he preaches the most pathetic sermon in the whole Bible and the whole nation repents. And then he gets angry about it. He goes to God and says, I just knew you would do this because you're a God of compassion and grace and you're slow to anger. I just, I just knew you would relent and not destroy the people. And he says, you know what? If it's going to be like this, just kill me. I'm angry and I'm discouraged. And you're like, what? what? Right? Normal Christianity. And, and of course, those aren't, those aren't examples necessarily to say, hey, that's a good example, but they're real examples. So just know that if you've struggled like that, you have good company with the men and women of faith in Scripture. And they can help us when we feel like that. Others who struggle with depression, this is just, you know, check this out on your own time. Uh, Job, we know Job, chapter 3, he, he cries out, curses the day of his birth. He's lost 10 kids. He's lost his livelihood. Now he's losing his health. His wife has just given up on him, apparently, and he can't take it anymore. The psalmist, we, we read Psalm 42, Psalm 43 goes with that, Psalm 73, Psalm 19, 25, in, in that wonderful acrostic psalm, Psalm 119, 25 starts out, my soul cleaves to the dust. That's a cry of depression. That's a cry of, Lord, I hurt so much and I can't take it anymore. So again, just know that if you're walking with somebody in depression, if you've gone through that, if you are going through that, there is sufficient care and help that your God has for you and it's illustrated in part in places like this in our Bibles. Okay? You say, what is spiritual... When I say spiritual depression, what are we talking about? We're talking about an overwhelming sorrow or debilitating state of sadness, pain, or hopelessness that usually leads to other struggles and challenges. Um, That's what spiritual depression is. And I just want to walk you through... Uh, a couple of um, principles of how we understand spiritual depression in the Bible. Uh, when I did my series on common life challenges over the summer, we talked a little bit about depression uh, in a more comprehensive way, so I'm not going to do a deep dive here, but let's just hit some of the highlights because when we come back next time and talk about Jeremiah's depression, I think this will be helpful background, okay? So what do we learn about spiritual depression from Scripture? Because you might struggle with this, you might know somebody, and the Bible has lots of help for us. First of all, depression is often occasioned by the loss of some sort. Uh, Cain in Genesis 4, Job in his book, Lamentations 3. Uh, what did Cain lose in Genesis chapter 4? He lost God's favor because God rejected his sacrifice. What did Job lose? Ten kids, his servants, his livelihood, the hope and support of his wife, and finally his health. Loss, Right? Uh, what did Jeremiah lose? Talk to me. What did he lose? His city, his people, his ministry. Uh, how's your ministry going to end, Jeremiah? The Babylonians are coming in and, and destroy everything. The end. Roll credits, right? There, there's Jeremiah's, right? That's it. So depression is often linked to loss. And, and we're going to talk about this Feeling sad and grieving and sorrowful and lamenting, you ready for this? Can be godly responses. It is not a reflection of the heart of God that we are indifferent when people we love 
or things that honor him are lost. And we're like, eh, okay. There is a godly sorrow. There is a good grief. There is a righteous lament. And being indifferent or bored or unresponsive is often an ungodly way to respond to those things. So let's not run away from every sadness or grief or sorrow thinking there's something wrong. That's our culture, right? Whenever whenever grief or sorrow or sadness happens, our culture says, fix it now. Can't be like that. And we need to sort of relearn the art of godly sadness and grief. Jesus wept over Jerusalem. He cried when his dear friend Lazarus died. God grieves over the stubbornness of fallen humanity. And if God does those things, that authenticates and validates the reality that there is a righteous grief and a godly sorrow. And we need to be practicing that as our Savior practiced that. So let's not run away from that. But depression, which I'm going to say is a wrong response, a, a, a running away from God instead of running to Him, is often occasioned by loss. So we need to keep that in mind. Interestingly, psychological studies that study depression continue to say this. About, I think the, the literature last time I looked, about 80-90% of all people that get a major depressive diagnosis, a, a professional psychological diagnosis, have had some loss in their life. So it's like the psychological literature is saying, hey, this is the association, and the Bible's been saying that the whole time. So we didn't need psychology to tell us that, but it's interesting that that psychology is, in a sense, um, observing what the Bible has already told us. Number two, depression can result when we respond certain ways to life challenges. This is interesting. Um, You can turn there or you can just listen. But you guys know the story, right? Cain and Abel, uh, Adam and Eve's children, the boys, they come in. They both give sacrifices in Genesis chapter 4. And uh, Abel brings his sacrifice. God accepts it. Cain brings his sacrifice, and God rejects it. And the Bible says in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, when Cain's sacrifice was not accepted by God, the narrator tells us, then Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell. We all know what anger is. When Hebrews, when when the biblical writers, the the Hebrew writers talked about a fallen countenance, that was their way of describing what? Depression. That's one way the Bible describes depression, a fallen countenance. So the question is, why is he angry? Why is his countenance fallen? Well, that's the next verse. God goes to him and says, Cain, why are you angry? Why has your countenance fallen? Now this is interesting, it's an interesting narrative to study because, and we, we talked about this last time, so I won't get into it right now, but it's interesting, God himself is the counselor, right? God goes and says, why are you angry? Why is your countenance fallen? Which communicates to us, God expected Cain to know what? God expected Cain to know what? Yeah. Yeah, well, well maybe, maybe that, but even before he gets there, God expected Cain to know why he was angry and why he was depressed. You know, sometimes we, we, we treat emotions like it just happens to us. You know, like I get in my car, it was cold last night, and the tire pressure sensor light comes on, right? Because 
well, that's the thermodynamics. We won't get into that. But, but you know, it gets cold and you don't have as much uh, uh, air pressure in your tires. And it's like, oh, those are, and it just happens, right? And we treat emotions like it's something that just happened to us. But God is illustrating and reminding us in that passage, emotions are not things that just happen to us, like accidents or, or you know, I got a cold or my allergies flared up today. Emotions are the result of how we respond to life. And God expects Cain to know exactly why that happened. And better, in the next verse, God says to Cain, if you will do what is right, your feelings are going to change. One of the lies of depression is it whispers into your ear, there's nothing you can do. You're just stuck with me. And God says, you can say to your depression, Hope in God, and your depression will flee. That's really hopeful for people that that believe this is just a, a disease or something they're stuck with. Notice also, depression is fueled by how we interpret circumstances. Didn't you just see that in Lamentations? We'll come back to that next time. But depression is fueled by how we interpret circumstances. That's why the same... That's why two people going through the same event, one develops depression, one doesn't. That's in part why. They're interpreting life differently. You know this. You meet people all the time. Is the glass half empty or is the glass half full? It's a glass with the same amount of liquid in it. Right? One person looks at it and says, Thank you, Lord, that my glass isn't totally empty. The other one looks at it and says, Oh, it's half empty. I don't know if I can make it. It's not full. There's only like half of it filled, you know, right? It's the same glass. And, you know, we, we usually make, you know, optimists and pessimists. No, no, no. That's a biblical issue. That's not a personality thing. It's a biblical issue how you interpret how much water is in the glass. And much more important things in life. Watch how you interpret circumstances. Depression is encouraged when we let feelings and misguided thoughts direct our heart and our behavior instead of reminding ourselves of God's promises and character. Did you see that in Psalm 42? The psalmist says, Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why are you disturbed within me? Then what does he do? He commands himself. He realizes, you know what, I'm letting my fallen emotions dictate my response here. Instead, I need to be preaching and commanding to my own soul how I ought to be responding. Mark it, guys. Whenever you see depression, you will see somebody who are letting their feelings and emotions drive their life instead of letting the promises and character of God determine responses. Depression may creep in when we lose sight of faith and hope in God. We saw that. Lamentation says, I've forgotten happiness. I can't remember what it's like. I've lost my hope in God. Job says the same thing. The psalmists say the same thing. And yet in our psalm, what does he say? Hope in God, right? Just because I feel hopeless doesn't mean there's no hope. Can I say that again? Just because you and I feel that there's no hope doesn't mean there is. Because our feelings are liars a lot of the time and sometimes you just need to call yourself out and say you know what I might feel like that that's not true that may feel true 
It's not true. And command your heart with grace-enabled conviction to look back to God and to remember and to apply what you know you did learn in Sunday school instead of letting your feelings dictate. Imagine that. You're letting your fallen emotions grab the steering wheel of your life. And your emotions are horrible drivers. They will run you into the ditch every time. And we have to look those fallen emotions in the eye and say, excuse me, you're not driver here. And take that wheel back with the promises and character of God. Finally, uh, feeling down or sad may be influenced by a physical fact. We'll come back to this next time. We'll pick this up next time. There are physical factors. I mean, well, it, isn't there physical things? Isn't, isn't depression a medical thing? What about antidepressants? I know, I know, I know. We'll come back and talk about that next time. But let's remember this. Jesus came to bear our sorrows and griefs as we turn to him for help and let his word influence our hearts and behavior. He can lead us out of depression to the hope and peace and rest that are promised in Scripture. Okay? I'll leave you with that. We'll come back and because we, we need to touch on those last three in a little more detail. But let's just put a comment in our notes for now. Well, Father, thank you that you give us such help and hope and that in a fallen world when we have many reasons to despair and to be discouraged, that we can turn our eyes upon Jesus, we can recollect his word, we can remember his promises and, and sing them and preach them to our own hearts and know that how we feel does not have to dictate how we live. Father, this is hard. Our, our feelings are strong. They, they, they are influential. They are convincing. And yet we have a great Savior. And uh, we look to Him. Father, I pray if we're dealing with this or if we're walking with somebody who is, give us grace to point them to You and the provisions of Your Word. We're grateful for the hope and help that we have in Jesus. And we pray in His name. Amen.